the, the when you wait in line at the bank, our line is, thank you for your patience. <laughs> yeah, I have the lapel. All right. So good evening, everyone. Thank you again for your patience and allowing me a chance to get here. I was on the way, and I got out of work late, and then the express track was broken, and so we were stuck at Queensboro Plaza, or Queens Plaza, for about 15 minutes, so you know, you know how it is in New York, right? All right, um, if you have your Bibles this evening, we're actually going to be in Genesis chapter 2, so go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. I actually ran here from the Steinway Station, so I'm still kind of catching my breath. Uh, so um, if you have, again, if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to read most of the chapter this evening as we get going. Now, um, go ahead and get there. If you're there, we're going to start in chapter 4, and we're going to read through the, through the rest of the chapter. It says this, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the, earth, of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused, not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Delium and Onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hittichel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet for him. And out of the ground, and out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called the living creature, every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air. And to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found an helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone, bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. And shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God to bless this message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, thank you for the word you've given us. I pray, Lord, that you would be with the, my mouth this evening, be with my mind, and help me to have focus of thought. Pray, Lord, that um, as we bring forth your message, that you would bless it, and that everyone here would be encouraged and challenged to be closer in their walk with you. 
We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Just a question for you. Have any of you ever imagined, like, a perfect world? Just like a perfect world where there's nothing wrong. Now, for most of us, when we think of a perfect world, like if we were to say right now, what would make this world awesome for you? All of us would probably have a list of things that we would love to see or love to be a part of the world. Now, like for me, like I like coffee. Now, if I could have coffee all the time and not have any side effects, I could drink coffee whenever I wanted, that'd be awesome. Now, some people may not like coffee. Some people might like tea. Now, some people might like, for instance, shoes. And for some people, a perfect world would be having like a third apartment for nothing more than all of their shoes. Like, how many of you would actually find that pretty awesome? Would think that would be a perfect world? Like, there was no, no money involved. You could afford to have just a third apartment that was nothing but a closet for your shoes. Now, for some people, that would be a perfect world. And, you know, for some people that don't like to drive, it's awesome living in New York because you don't have to worry about driving. No cars. You don't, well, if you don't want to have one, you don't have to have one. And there are so many other things, like, imagine this. What if you could eat as much chocolate as you wanted and didn't have to worry about gaining a pound? That would be a perfect world. Now, what if, what if dirty diapers smelled like roses? How many of you mothers would find life to be perfect if that were the case? I was thinking about my dad while he was visiting here in New York, and my dad, we, I grew up in Idaho, and that's where my dad lives, he lives there. And the thing is about my dad, when he was here for about a week, that was enough. That was about all of New York he needed. He could probably do the rest of his life without ever coming here again, because New York is just not ideal for him. Now me, on the other hand, when I go visit my family, as much as I love them, for whatever reason, Idaho is just not for me anymore. And about a week is about enough for me. It's really kind of funny because we have similar personalities, but for him, life in Idaho, a week in New York, is the perfect balance. For me, a life in New York, a week in Idaho, the perfect balance. Now, when we look or when we imagine a perfect world, most often what we think about is the things that are convenient for us or the things that would be more comfortable for us. So when we, when we look at the concept of a perfect world, or what would make this world awesome or great, usually our first reaction is the simple things that are comfortable and convenient for us. Now, in the scriptures, the, verse we, the verses we just read, I want you to realize this. The verses we just read, they actually describe what the perfect world is like. Now, if you think about it, the perfect world is actually a world where there's no sin. There's no sin at all. Like, could you imagine a world where there was no sin? You actually don't have to imagine it. It's actually right here. These verses right here in Genesis chapter 2 actually describe the world, the way God made it, without there being any sin in it. And this world actually gives us a picture of what is perfect. And so what happens is we have our view of what we think of the world today, and when we try to think of a perfect world, what we do is we try to add all of our conveniences and all the things that would make it more comfortable for us, but often we neglect the idea of what it would actually be like without there being sin. Because really, we can't imagine a world without sin because it's kind of a distant reality from where we live. Because sin is ever-present. Like if you, if you listen to any news, 
whether it be CNN or Fox, doesn't matter what side of the camp it's on, all you're going to hear is terrible news about how awful the conditions in this world are. And when you watch the news and you see the negative effects and the bad economics and the turmoil and the strife and the tragedies that happen even in our own country, all those things are horrible and they are a result of sin. But when we look at this scripture right here, we actually get a viewpoint of what the world is like without sin. And so often when we think of a perfect world, some of the things that are present in this chapter wouldn't necessarily be the first things that we would think of to be present in a perfect world or a world that's really comfortable for us. And I want to just look at a few. There's, there's five points in here, and there's five particular characteristics of the world without sin. And there's a few of them might actually surprise you about things that we be present in a perfect world where there's no sin. Now, first of all, I'm not just making a claim like, oh, this is the perfect world. If you look in chapter 1 of Genesis... Verse 31, this is actually God's summation of it. In verse 31 it says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now, a lot of times, you know, we might hear the phrase, or somebody might say, Oh, this is great. You need to do this, or you need to go do this, or you need to check out this thing. And they say it's good. But they just mean they enjoyed it. It actually wasn't good. But when God says something is good, it's good. But in this verse, he actually says it's very good. Now, there's not many things that God says are very good, but when he described his creation the way it was in, at the end of chapter 1, when we go into chapter 2 and, and we start learning the history of Adam and start seeing the placement of the Garden of Eden, we're told by God that he found the world to be very good. Now, I'm going to trust God's assessment of the world and just say that when he says it was very good, it was very good. Most likely, if God says something is very good, it's probably also what we could consider to be perfect. Wouldn't you agree? That this would be, in fact, the perfect world. Now, when we look at these conditions of the world, like I said, some of them are going to be surprising. Now, first of all, if you read Genesis chapter 1, which I'm going to say, I would say Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, probably 4, have got to be the probably the most read verses in the entire Bible. And I say that for this reason. How many of you have ever started trying to read the Bible on like a plan that starts you off in Genesis and you make it a couple chapters in and you miss, you miss a day, you miss a week, and you go back to the beginning? Or you scrap it and you just start reading some kind of devotional book that reads you here and here and here, and then you decide, okay, it's a new year, I'm going to start back over again, and you start at Genesis 1 again. Or you hear a preacher preach about it and you start from the beginning. I'd say these verses are probably the most read verses in the Christian faith. And in Genesis chapter 1, if you read that, you see a world that is perfectly in order. God made a world in a way that makes sense. Now, if you read through that, you'll see that when he made something, everything that that particular creature or that organism needed for life had been created before. Now, it wouldn't have made sense if God created trees on the first day because there'd be no ground, there'd be no light, there'd be no water for them. But what he did, he actually created everything in an order so that everything after would have what it needed. He created light first. Then he created the earth, the dirt and the water, and he separated those. And then when he had the water, he made plants. The plants had the light and the water they needed, And then he created animals 
which needed the plants to survive. So he created everything in an order. By the time he created man, the last thing he created on the last of creation, man was in charge of this world. Now, would it make sense for God to say, poof, here's Adam. I haven't created anything else yet, but you're in charge of it all. To have this floating person just out in nowhere, that doesn't make sense. God did everything in order, and he planned it out. It was very meticulous. Everything that he made was in perfect order. And when God said, this is a very good, he was not just talking about the condition. He was talking about just the whole plan and the order of everything. It was good. I mean, he did a good job. Like the world today, I'm like, we're, we're so bad at taking care of the world, but it still hasn't fallen apart. 6,000 years of us not taking care of the earth, still doing just fine. Because he knew what he was doing when he made it. Now, the second one that we're going to see is if you turn to, look at verse 15. Verse 15, this is in the perfect world. It says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Do you know what that means? Adam was supposed to work. Now, how many of you, if you were to imagine your perfect world, would include work? Going to work every day. Would that be part of your perfect world? not, Not always. Sometimes you don't want to go to work. But... In the perfect world, before there was sin, before there was anything bad introduced to the world, Adam worked. He was responsible for taking care of the garden. And if you notice, Adam never complained. He just did what he was supposed to. If you go on, it even... Now, consider this. Before Eve had been created, Adam was alone. He was the only one who didn't have a pair. Nobody was with him. He was by himself, and he recognized he was alone. But he had this responsibility to take care of the garden and naming all the animals. And he's walking through, naming all these birds, all the animals. There's another one. There's another one. Going through all this by himself. Nobody really to talk to. And he's doing it all by himself. And then God creates Eve. So now, after God creates Eve, during this whole time, Adam is still working. And most often for us, we think of work as being such a toil and such a torment. But Adam did it. And the whole time he did it, he never complained. He never whined about it. He took his responsibility and did what God had for him to do and did it happily. He was in fellowship with God. And even though he was alone, he was content doing and working. And so many of us, if we were to take our world and make it perfect, we would eliminate work. But God actually has that as a part of us. He made us to be active and to be productive. He didn't make us just to sit there and look at pretty stuff. He didn't make us just to exist. He made us for a particular function. And when we function, we find complete joy and satisfaction and contentment where we could be alone and not even mind. It wouldn't bother us. We, wouldn't, we could, might be able to see, oh, we're alone, but it wouldn't be the focus and the dominating focus of our lives because we would be content in doing what our task was for God. Next... This is probably one of my favorites. How many of you like making decisions? How about making really, really important decisions? Now, I'm not so much a big fan of decisions. Now, I, see, I was expecting that from at least one kid. Now, here's the thing. When you're little, when you're younger, say you're five or six, most of your decisions are made for you. Like, if you think about it, like how most, only, only the parents that are really bad allow their four, five, six-year-olds to make all their own decisions. It's really the bad parents that do that. 
But a good parent will, you know, dole out decisions as is appropriate for maturity. But if you think about it, think, think, think back. Just when you were a kid, no decisions. You didn't have to worry about what you were going to do. You had no real decisions to make for your life. Now, the older you got, you just had to start making decisions. Now, some of the easiest ones, the simplest ones, are like, are you going to decide to obey your parents or decide to be punished? Then your decisions grow from there. Well, what am I going to do after I graduate? Well, what am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about my work? How long am I going to stay at this job? What am I going to do when I retire? All these are big decisions that we have to make. And we didn't have to make them when we were a kid. But in Genesis chapter 2, God actually gave Adam decisions. Now, many of us, especially of my generation, sometimes we can avoid decisions by pretending not to make them, when in fact that's actually making a decision. But avoiding a decision is making a decision. But a lot of us, especially that are immature or don't want to decide on a particular thing, we avoid decisions as if they're a horrible part of life, when actually God gave Adam a decision. In Genesis chapter 2, we were introduced to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, that tree in and of itself was not evil. That tree itself was God giving Adam a decision. In God's perfect world, we have a decision. We can decide to obey his commandment or to disobey his commandment. The decision's ours. Now, so many times, we, like I said, we would like to avoid making a decision. We would like to ignore a decision. We would try to put it off or procrastinate on a decision. But God wants us to make the decision. Every day he wants us to make a decision. And that's a part of a perfect world is deciding, am I going to obey God today or am I going to disobey God today? And like I said, making a decision or not making a decision is actually your decision. So if, say, for instance, you say, I know what God says to do. I just won't do the bad thing. I'm just not going to do what God says to do. That's deciding to not obey God. And that's our decision. And we see here in Genesis chapter 2, decisions and making important decisions in our life is not a frustration that we have as a result of sin. It's something God placed in our lives so we can decide. Now, the fourth thing, this is an interesting one, just... And especially those of you who have been married, sometimes you might, think of, you might think of this one as weird. But do you realize that God, well, one, he instituted marriage here, but he also created in-laws. Now, you don't see it there, but in verse, hold on, one sec, in verse 24, he says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Right there, God actually outlines the creation and the intention and the involvement of in-laws. He created marriage, and so often we think of, oh yeah, he created Adam and Eve, and I'm not going to necessarily stress that point because we've probably heard hundreds of sermons on that one. But if you think about it, God instituted marriage, and he gave outlines of how in-laws are supposed to work. You're supposed to leave your father and your mother and cleave to your new spouse, become one flesh, you have that relationship before, but it's not to dictate what's going on in the marriage relationship. That's supposed to be between the couple and God. And a lot of times, when you look at, if you were to look at probably most all marriage problems, it comes from not understanding the proper placement of relationships in relationship to the marriage itself. So often, it's a struggle between 
the hated mother-in-law or the dreaded father-in-law that's trying to eke their way into every aspect of your life. How many marriages have ended just because people can't get the God, God's pattern down? And God outlined exactly, and you see here, God didn't say in-laws were evil. The problem is that the people who get married don't understand what they're supposed to do in relation to their in-laws because they didn't go back and look at what God said to do. Leave his father and his mother. Cleave unto his wife. Very simple. All the problems in marriage because of people interfering and getting in way of your decisions will be eliminated if people just looked and said, realized that God didn't say in-laws were evil. In a perfect world, in-laws existed. Countless guys would probably say, no, 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 no. Mother-in-laws don't exist in a perfect world, but they do. God actually planned for them that way. Now, for this last part, we actually, for the, the, fifth, the fifth characteristic, or the, the fifth thing that we actually see as a part of the perfect world, we're going to actually go over to chapter 3, and we're going to look at the fall of Adam, and we're going to actually recognize something that was present here. You have to think about it for just a moment, but in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, this is after... The serpent has come in and tempted. This is after Adam and Eve have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is after that. Following that, they've sown these fig leaves together. And this is what it says in verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou, Adam? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, how many of you remember getting in trouble when you were a kid? Dude, really? Everyone has gotten, gotten in trouble. Now, in Idaho where we grew up, we did it with a car. We had a driveway, the car drove up, everything else like that. Now, on the days when I got into trouble, and I got into really big trouble, I didn't want to be around the door when my dad got home. I wanted to be as far away from the door and from the trouble I knew I was in, as I possibly could be. Now, most days, if I wasn't in trouble, well, okay, the, day, the few days that I was not in trouble, I would be waiting by the door, anxiously waiting my dad to get home. It was exciting. My dad was home. Yay, dad's home, dad's home. But if I was in trouble, I was far away from the door. Now, my dad drove the car home. Now, here's the thing. It's really, really interesting. Whether I was in trouble or whether I was not in trouble, the car sounded the same. It didn't sound any different. It wasn't, like it, it wasn't like there was a backfire if I was in trouble. The car sounded exactly the same. The indications, the sounds that let me know my dad was home were the same, whether or not I was in trouble or not. Now, I want you to recognize, realize something. In chapter 8, Adam and Eve, or verse 8, Adam and Eve hide... When they hear God coming. That tells me one thing. They knew what it sounded like. They were familiar with God. They were familiar with fellowship. This tells me that prior to the fall, regular fellowship was something, a part of their lives. In a world without sin, daily fellowship, regular fellowship, constant fellowship with God was a regular thing. When there's no sin, fellowship is there. When there's sin, the fellowship is broken. But we see automatically, if we look at what's happening there in chapter, in verse 8, 
we can reflect that back on the conditions before the fall. In the perfect world, Adam and Eve regularly knew what it was, what it was like to hear God walking in the garden. They knew what the sound of God coming in was. They knew what it was like to have God's presence getting closer. And I would submit to you that until that day, they were like little children running to see what God was going to say or what God was going to tell them about. We really don't know exactly what their relationship was like, but I do know this. It was close. And here's the thing. They were not ashamed. There was nothing that they hid from God. As far There was no secrets from God. Now, we all know that you can't keep a secret from God who knows everything. But how many of you have tried? How many of you have thought or acted in such a way that you would say, you know what? I understand in my head that God can see me everywhere, but we live in a way as if we pretend that God can't see us. Sometimes we act as though if we just kind of ignore him, he doesn't really know I'm doing that. If I just kind of pretend, then he won't really know I'm doing it. We do that a lot. Probably more often than we'd like to admit. But what we see here, in the perfect world, there is fellowship with God. There is close fellowship with God. And what happens is, though, we see here that, one, there is also consequences here. When you go back and Adam is given the instructions, he is told, let's see, in verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, I remember actually studying out the Hebrew on that one, and that surely die, it means dying you shall die. It's, it's like very emphatic, like you're going to die. It's not like you might die or you might experience like pains like death. No, it's you're going to die. You're going to die so much you're going to die. And this idea here is that you're going to die. It's, there's a consequence. And when we go into chapter 3, which is a very, very familiar passage, when we he- see chapter 3, we see that sin is introduced into the world. And there is a judgment. And it's, it's death and it's punishment. And it's, it's there. Now... Adam and Eve didn't kill over, dead on the spot. But what happened was there was a separation. It started the minute they recognized their condition. They realized, God can't see me like this. And everything changed. Now, what we have is, one, we see all these characteristics of what a perfect world is like. And so often we look at this perfect world and just like I mentioned earlier at the beginning, we, we, we look at things and conditions that would make our lives more comfortable, and we try to impose those and say that will be what makes this world perfect. And we do the same thing. Even, even now, if, if you consider this, you would say, okay, so yeah, the world is sin, but we're not going to get back to the perfect world. But a lot of times what we try to do is we try to get back to the perfect conditions, and we try to get back to ideal conditions. Now, if you look at every politician, whether you disagree with them or agree with them, every one of them has pretty much the same objective in mind. They want to get the world back to a comfortable place. They want to make this world perfect. Now, their means to it are probably most often all off base, but really they want to get back to the ideal conditions. Although they don't actually want to get back to these conditions of the perfect world, they want to get back to their perspective of what would be comfortable for them. And so, really, the solution has nothing to do with politics or 
laws that are passed. It has nothing to do with how loud you can rant on Facebook. Those aren't going to be things that are going to fix the problem in the world. That's not going to get us back to a perfect world. I want you to turn over with me to Romans chapter 5. A couple of verses here I want to read you in Romans chapter 5. First of all, it says this in verse 12. This is a familiar verse to many. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So there we have what happened really when Adam died. It wasn't just him that died. He passed it on to his generations. Everyone after him lives just like Adam did in sin. Now, in this, verse 17, it says this. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Verse 21, that as sin hath hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So now, what we actually see here is, one, God does recognize the fact that, okay, when sin entered the world, that's what messed everything up. But Christ's sacrifice, the grace of God, the gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, is actually the remedy for the problem. Now, first of all, you have to understand that the problem, primary problem is one of a spiritual problem. The death that Adam experienced was a separation from God. And that separation from God, as these verses in Romans explain further, says that, one, that caused a separation from God until Moses came along. And when Moses came along and introduced the law, the problem was exemplified because God specified more problems, more things that God was, man was responsible for. When God introduced the law through Moses, he showed us much more, how many more ways we're wrong. The law doesn't make us right. The law shows us how wrong we are. And as we look at sin, we look at one, God had one law. Don't eat of that tree. When Adam broke that law, he broke all of God's laws. He broke every commandment that God had. And that introduced sin to the whole world. When Moses came along and introduced the law, it didn't say, this is your method of righteousness. That was God saying, look at this, this is my standard. You'll never meet up to this. It's only through grace. Now, Jesus Christ himself was obedient to every point of the law. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And when we trust in Christ as our Savior and we receive that grace, he gives us a new life. Now, here's the thing. When we live a life in God's grace, he wants us to reimagine the world. He wants us to redefine our standards of perfection. Like I said at the beginning, every time we think of a perfect world, we outline all the ways to make the world more comfortable for us. We think of all the ways that we can make the world more convenient. But God is not interested in our comfort. God is not interested in our convenience. God is not interested in us being able to go to every corner and find a Starbucks because we like coffee. That's not God's interest in our lives. 
God's interest in our lives is for us to get a perspective on what's really important in life and to obey him. It's when we go back to that perfect world, God wants us to reshape our thinking and understand what his perspective and what his idea of a perfect world is. It's a world without sin. Now, we understand, God understands, I'm not trying to say that God says, well, we're going to live in a perfect world. If you live, obey, live right, the, world, the sin is just going to go away in the world. I'm not saying that. What we see, though, is that when we change our thinking and we realize what's important to God and we align ourselves to what God's standard of perfection and what a perfect world is, if we start realigning our thinking to the way God sees a perfect world, it can start taking care of some of our problems. Just think back to the points we made. One, God is in order. God has a plan. God is in line. If we were responsible and took care of things and put things in order, how, much of our li- how many problems in our lives would be taken care of? That's one of God's plans for us is to, to get things in order. The other thing is, when you look at our work, think about this. In the perfect world, there was work. When we're redeemed and we have God's grace in our lives and we're saved, our perspective and our attitude toward work should change. If you hate work and you want nothing to do with work at all and you're trying to avoid work, one, if you're lazy or just because you hate work, you're not recognizing God's plan for your life. God intends for you to work. God intends for you to labor. That's a part of God's plan for your life. If you hate work, there's a couple things you need to do. One, you need to check out if you're working where God wants you to work. If you're not following God's plan for your life or you're not pursuing God in your life and you're just working wherever you want because that's where you want to work, maybe you're just not in line with what God wants you to do if you hate work. Or maybe you need to change your attitude at work. Maybe you look at work like, oh, look at this, I have to work this job because Adam and Eve sinned. No. God intended for you to work. Stop being lazy and start appreciating the opportunity and the fact that God gave you breath that you can go to work. Appreciate the fact that God gave you a job that you can go work. Appreciate what God has done in your life. And when you do that, you're actually going to get kind of back to what God's original plan for the perfect world is. Second thing is, when you continue on in that vein, if you think about decisions. We mentioned this kind of in passing there, but so often we try to avoid decisions. Or we try to say, you know what, I know God says to do this. I know God says to do this. I'm going to do it. I'll do it tomorrow. Why put off tomorrow what you could do today? If God gives you a command or God gives you an opportunity or gives you something to do today, it's your responsibility to do it today. Every day is a decision for us to either live for God or live for ourselves. Now, in the perfect world, if we were to look at exactly what God says, we would look at every day as a new opportunity to obey God. That's what it would be like if we were to live in a perfect world. Every day is an opportunity. Now, one, this kind of goes in line with the idea that, you know what, you should be in your Bible reading every day and praying every day because you're not going to know what God wants you to do if you're not involved in his word and actively pursuing that, or actively pursuing relationships that are godly and encouraging you to be closer to God. When you're involved in those things, you'll be closer to God and you'll know more about what God wants you to do and you'll know what decisions to make. And when you, when you come across that crossroads, which in reality, every day is a crossroads. Every day is a new opportunity for you to get closer to God or get farther away from God. It's looking at every decision and saying, will I get closer to God by doing this or will I get farther away from God? 
and I'm not going to even say get closer to the world. It's, it's one or the other. You're going to get closer to God or farther away from God. And really, God is the central focus in that idea. It's, are you going to get closer to him or farther away from him? Take every decision in light of that context. When you do that, you're going to be living like Adam and Eve did when they were in a world without sin. Now, the other thing is, consider your fellowship with God. We saw that fellowship with God was a part of the perfect world. Now, this indicates, what our fellowship with God actually indicates a lot about us. Now, if you think about this, Adam and Eve hid from God when they sinned. When they had allowed sin to be a part of their lives, until that was corrected, they avoided God. And all of us kind of do the same thing. If you, if you think about your life, just, just think about your relationship with God. When, when there's something that you know you're doing wrong, that's a part of your life, you tend to be more distant from God. When you start fixing that and getting correct, you actually feel God closer. You actually feel that relationship getting stronger. When you disobey God and you do something wrong or you, or you, you neglect spending time with him in his word... You can actually feel that, and you feel that distance growing. If you're not praying as much as you should, you're going to feel that distance growing. And that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. That distance started expanding when they made that decision to disobey God. And they lived in that decision, and they, they tried to fix it themselves, and they tried to, to cover it up, and they tried to hide it, and they tried to, to get away from it. But that didn't fix it. They had to, God had to intervene and to make a sacrifice for them, for them to get that right and to restore that fellowship. Now, that fellowship wasn't as close as it was before, because before there was nothing in their lives that caused shame. They have this guilty past now. They have this thing, and even though God forgives and doesn't bring up the past, we have a hard time forgetting that. We dig that stuff up. We live in that focus. But God, he forgets that. But so often for us, it's really hard to do that. And... This evening, just remember, over in, verse, in, in Romans chapter 5, it says this, you know, Sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the idea. When Jesus Christ came, it, it, a lot of that had to do to restore that fellowship to the way it was before. Now, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament and all the obedience and all the looking forward to the Messiah that hearkened to that. And that allowed people throughout the Old Testament, all the characters and all the, the, the testimonies we see of all those characters throughout the Old Testament, those give evidence to the fact that they're looking forward to the promised Messiah. But the Messiah has come. Jesus Christ has died for our sins. And when we accept him as our Savior and we turn to God, we experience a new life. And that grace in our life allows us to have that restored fellowship. Now, in Hebrews, it describes it this way, that we may come boldly into the throne of grace. Now, boldly under the throne of grace. God wants us to be able to approach him with confidence, boldly. He doesn't want us to be afraid and hiding. He doesn't want us to say, oh, I, I did this bad thing in the past. He doesn't want that. He wants us to have a close relationship with him. And that's the whole idea. When God restores life, he wants grace to reign. That's the idea. He wants grace to reign. He wants grace to be in control of stuff. And he wants us to focus on that. So this evening, the challenge for us would be to look at our lives in the context or in light of what the perfect world was like. And you can see this like, through your attitudes or one, through your relationship with God. If you've never 
come to the point in your life where you've accepted Christ as your Savior, today is the day to do that. It's not something you should put off for tomorrow or for next week. If you know that you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, please speak to myself or Brother Franz or any one of the workers. If you're ladies, speak to one of the ladies. They'd be glad to show you from God's Word exactly how you can know for sure that heaven is your home. And for those of us who have experienced God's grace, sometimes we need to step back away and we need to stop focusing on the convenience in our lives. We need to start, stop focusing on what's comfortable for us. And we need to start recognizing and look back and say, you know what? What about my attitudes or what about my perspective needs to change so I can get in line with what God's view of the perfect world really is? Because really, like, we should be interested in what God's perspective is. So as we examine that, it, it's simple. Like, what is your attitude? Like, work is something that we all have to do. What is your attitude regarding work? How do you feel at work? Now, I, I know that you know, we, some of us have dreaded jobs, or sometimes we have ups and downs in our work. But really, as you look at your work and you look at what you're pouring your life into for 40, 50, 60 hours a week, it should be something that you're fulfilled in. You should know that that's where God wants you to be. If you're not, look at that. Look at whether it might be your attitude that needs to change or they need to be more grateful. Look at your attitude and perspective on where you work. And think about that. This it, it really is supposed to be an indication of where we are in our walk with God. God even has instructions on how we're supposed to respond to, to our, our masters or our bosses and our employers. We should have a certain respect for them. But our attitude is really good indication of where we are and how we view God in his, in, and how he, in his view of the world. The other thing is, Looking at our, our fellowship with God and our obedience to God, those really go hand in hand. But when you look at your day-to-day decisions, is God a part of those? Is every day mapped out according to that? Or do you kind of allow your decisions to kind of sidestep him or pretend that he's not involved in a particular decision? Because really, God has something to say about everything. It's not like he's aloof or indifferent to something. The other thing is our, our fellowship with him. How is your fellowship? It's something really we all need to consider. Do you think your fellowship would be, would hearken back to the world without sin? See, when, when Christ restored you in salvation, that was meant to restore your fellowship with God. Are you in fellowship with God? Do you daily strive to be close to him? It, it, it's just like that me being a little kid. Just think in your minds, do you desire nothing more than anything else to be with God? If your answer to that was not immediately, yes, yes, I, I can't wait to be with God, there's something in your life that doesn't belong there. Don't know what it is, but there's something that doesn't belong there. Because Adam and Eve, I guarantee you, before the fall, when they heard God coming... They were right next to him. They couldn't wait for him to be there. When we don't run at the chance to be with God, when we don't run to God, when we hear him coming, that just tells us there's something wrong. I couldn't tell you what it is, but I can guarantee you this. If right now you don't say, you know what? With all my heart, if I heard God, I'd be right there. Something's wrong. Something's amiss. And you need to look at where you're disobeying God. 
And you need to take that to the altar. And you need to say, you know what, God? I have been distant from you in this part of my life. I have been avoiding you in this part of my life. I've been disobedient with this particular instance of my life. I need to get that right tonight. Tonight, when we have the altar call, you have an opportunity to say, you know what? This right here is impeding my fellowship with God. I know this. And what I would do is challenge you. If you haven't had a strong desire to be with God or spend time with, his, in, with him in his word, or if right now you don't have a strong desire to pray, go to the altar and pray and say, God, what is it that it, I have allowed in my life that I might even be aware of right now or that I have kind of just neglected or forgotten about? What is it that I need to fix? What is it that I am disobeying in? Reveal to me what I need to fix in my life so I can be closer to you again, so I can have that fellowship that needs to be there. Because... That's what we need. We need to have... Yeah, We're not going to get a world without sin. We're not going to wake up tomorrow with a bed of roses. But the thing we're responsible for is living our life in fellowship with God. That's what we can do. We can't fix the world. But we can allow God to fix what's wrong with us. When it comes to the perfect world, you're not going to fix everyone else's problems. God doesn't expect you to fix my problems. God expects you to go to him and allow him to fix what's wrong in your life. So if you would, go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes. We'll go ahead and have an opportunity for you to come and pray. And really, take time to examine yourself and look at what things may need to be realigned or readjusted in your life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, Lord. Thank you for your word, and thank you for the opportunity you give us on a regular basis just to spend time with you. Pray, Lord, that everyone here, myself included, we would, we would take time to, to really consider our walk with you and our fellowship with you. Pray, Lord, that you would work in every one of our hearts and our lives so we could examine them and be closer to you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right.